Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. I'm Dr. Alice Evans. Today I'm joined by Professor Catherine Sikink and we're discussing her brilliant new book, Evidence for Hope. Um, Catherine, welcome. Thank you. So we're going to discuss the, t- the two elements of the book. First about the legitimacy of human rights and then about the effectiveness. So tell me, are human rights Western imperialism? <laughs> no. Okay. Why not? <laughs> because if we look at the actual or- origins of human mm. rights, mm. and here I'm talking about the actual origins of the idea mm-hmm. that human rights should deserve international protection. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so we're not going back here to the American uh, uh, Declaration of Independence or the French. Uh, Declaration of the Rights of, of Man and Citizens. Okay, so those ideas genuinely did come out of the West. The idea that governments should protect their citizens. Okay, but there's a second set of ideas, human rights, that that if your government violates your rights, that there should be some international protection of those rights. That's a much more recent set of ideas. It comes in the middle of the 20th century. And that idea is not Western imperialism. Indeed, the great powers after World War II did not want human rights to go into the UN Charter. Britain and the United States feared that legalization of human rights. Remember, the Brits (laughs) had their empire still. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the United States had Jim Crow Mm -hmm. in the South. And the Soviets had their own problems at home. Okay. So the great powers did not want to legalize the notion of the international protection of human rights. And that demand for legalization came from other small powers after World War II, and especially Latin America. 20 of the 50 countries present at San Francisco, where the uh, UN Charter was uh, drafted, were from Latin America. And though they had that uh, plurality, mm. uh, uh, they voted together and they pushed to make sure that human rights was mentioned seven times in the UN Charter. Okay, fine. So that's the history, and I'll grant you that, that historically in the 1950s, 60s, etc., people have pushed for human rights. And also in the book, you highlight cases of people in the global south using human rights rhetoric, and you interpret this as evidence So, look, people across the world want and demand human rights. But I wonder... Given now that human rights have this sort of international status, could it be that people are just strategically using whatever discourse is most effective for furthering their needs? And it's not like they really value human rights. They're just using it to get ahead, to, to, to force international agents to pay attention, so to speak. I'm sure that there's some actors out there strategically using human mm-hmm. rights. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt. Um, but if we, uh, you know, if we look at uh, polls, mm, for example, mm, mm, of people in the mm, global south, mm. uh, there's a new book out uh, by Jim Ron and his co-authors mm. called Taking Root, and it has very large public opinion polls mm. in Mexico, Colombia, uh, Morocco, India, Nigeria, mm. and they ask people what do they think about human rights, mm. and they're actually surprised that relatively large numbers of people speak favorably about human rights and speak favorably about their trust in their local human rights organizations, for example. Um, And they 
ask specifically what they think about the United States and U.S. imperialism mm-hmm. or other kinds of imperialism, the people who support human rights are most likely to be anti-imperialist. Mm. Okay, here's a question then. So, let's suppose that some people care about some people care about and value human rights, and we use that to justify the argument that yes, human rights institutions and human rights mobilization is a worthwhile endeavor, right? It has it has legitimacy, and therefore we should continue to look at this. But then I wonder if I look around the world today, if I look at Hong Kong, if I look at Lebanon, if I look at Chile, those huge, those huge outpouring of protest, I don't see human rights per se emerging as a key rhetoric. I mean, you know, in 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 Hong Kong, it's about autonomy and democracy. In Lebanon, it's partly about basic needs. In Chile, it's you know about pensions, old age suicides, and inequalities. I don't see that, you know, it's partly about public goods. It's partly about public goods and how the state is governed and the sort of societies people want to live in. It's not about individual violations per se. So I just wonder whether... So here's his long-winded question. Even if we grant, yes, some people care about human rights. Even if we grant, yes, fine, those institutions have legitimacy. Is there a danger in us then continuing to focus on those institutions rather than studying what matters to people from the ground, rather than taking a more bottom-up view and saying, well, what is it that these people want and what will further their interests? Because if we just take the sort of human rights view and go, well, do those work and let's, let's measure and monitor and evaluate the thing that we happen to care about, we might miss the big picture of what's mobilising people or what, what's getting them animated in Chile, in Lebanon, or Hong Kong, I wonder. So, long well, question. <laughs> yeah, first, I'm not persuaded that people in the. I know, I know more about Chile. I know yeah. a little about Hong we Kong. We should talk about Chile. Okay, then. I'm not persuaded that those people don't care about human rights. No, no, okay? I wouldn't say that. But I, I don't I, know if that's mobilizing the yeah. protest. In fact, I was in Hong Kong for the first time ever, a little over a year ago, and I think that the Hong Kong protesters care very much about human rights, including the right to democracy. Mm-hmm. Okay, They're a little worried about talking about the right to democracy, and sometimes they avoid that because mm-hmm. they know it's not some, it, it's something that could, uh, could lead to more Chinese repression. Mm-hmm. The thing that the Chinese government feels most worried about is people talking about the right to democracy. Yes, yes. Uh, and so uh, in Chile, for example, you know, these current protests are following on uh, protests uh, that students had yes, the around mobilization, yeah, yeah. and it's about the right to education. I mean, it's completely about the right to not only just education to uh, a free education at yeah. the university yeah. level. You know, um, which in fact is not even a right that's in one of the human rights documents. Right to education is, but not the right to free mm-hmm. university education. So Chilean students believe in rights above and beyond the rights that are in the international human rights uh, document. I think it doesn't right. have to be so, either or. That's the other thing. We say no, it's sure. not rights. And this is, you know, it's not, this is, you know, what some uh, scholars with whom I'm having debates mm-hmm. say. It's equality, not yeah. rights. You Samuel know what I mean? Right. right. Or uh, Michael Ignatieff said it's ordinary virtues, not rights. Okay, now, both of those books, which are, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, are more kind of interesting philosophical inquiries, are not based on empirical evidence, right? There, I mean, Michael went around the world and talked to people, and he had the sense that they cared more about these individual virtues, I mean, these these ordinary virtues. Um, but 
that's why I like to use the evidence from Jim Ron and his colleagues, which is actually a, a large randomized survey mm -hmm. and not a series of conversations. Um, or my, my colleagues here at Harvard, uh, Patrick Vink and from FAM, um, who do surveys with victims around the world, victims, post-conflict victims or conflict victims. Mm. Okay? And again, people always want to pose it either or. Either they want peace or they want justice, meaning mm. you know, trials. Um, and what they find is, of course they want peace. If you make people say, do you want peace or justice, in conflict zones, they say, I want peace. Yeah. Okay? If you ask them detailed questions about their desires, it turns out they have a deep yearning for justice too. And, and so I, I'm just kind of feeling like, why do we always have to frame it as one or the other? And when you start ask, doing detailed empirical research with people about their desires, you will find that rights prominently appear. Okay, so I would say, push back on two things. Um, one, yes, of course, people want multiple things. I totally accept we have multiple preferences, fine. So I guess one question, is there a slight danger of reverse engineering yet? So every time you see people pushing for democracy or education, you say, ah, but it's the right to democracy. So I just wonder if there's the possibility of just adding rights to whatever people are talking about to legitimize that agenda. That's one, one possibility. But so fine, we can accept that maybe they're there. And I, I guess my concern is more methodological. So I accept that people want the right to education, want the right to democracy. But when I look at uh, a lot of human rights scholarship, much of it is maybe examining the effects of specific uh, human rights institutions or human rights treaties, whether it's CEDAW or whatever, right? So evaluating the effects of these treaties, presuming that we should be focusing on them at all. And I wonder whether methodologically for us as political scientists, whether that's a distraction and whether we should start from the bottom up to learn from social movements, to learn both, mm -hmm. you know, what is it that people that motivates people and two, what is it that's most helpful to them? So in the entire journey of a movement, whether it's in Chile or Hong Kong, people are going to draw on multiple, multiple things, whether it's international conventions, whether it's on local alliances and coalitions, etc., and would it not be more useful to have that more bottom-up approach and to understand how people draw on different aspects together to make their package rather than having this, well, we think this intervention is important, let's evaluate its effects. That would be my concern. Um, as you know, I've been working off and on on social movements for a long time. Okay? And, and I came to this issue originally purely through qualitative research and meeting with many social movement activists. And so my conviction that people in Latin America are committed to human rights has to do with decades, actually, yes. now of talking to human rights activists and talking to them not, not about all of their work, all this amazing work that people are doing throughout the region, often framed in human rights terms. So mm. I completely agree we should talk with social movements. I also am actually really supportive of all sorts of alternative methodologies that get at what ordinary people think. Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. I like to do, you know, interviews with social movement activists, mm -hmm. but I admire people who do surveys, uh, survey experiments, mm -hmm. or like my, one of my former students, uh, who's you know, professor at, at Tulane, Jeff Dancy, has just um, produced a paper that uses. Um, Google searches, right. the data on Google searches. So he actually asks, 
where in what countries of the world are people most likely to do Google searches with the word human rights in them. Oh, how interesting. And what he discovers mm. is not in Britain and the United States and France, okay, but actually in countries where human rights are really at stake, mm -hmm. you know, so in places like El Salvador, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, or Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. you know. And so it, I think these alternative methodologies that really get yes, at what yes. ordinary people think and do is mm -hmm. the way to go. And when you start doing that, you find these cool things. Yes, like, yes, yes. like people Google human rights, all of a sudden they go, I need to know about human rights because we're in trouble here. Mm. Okay, not, uh, and, and not, I think, because someone imposed it upon them. No, okay, I'm with you, I'm with you. Okay, so now let's look at effectiveness. And one of the main claims in the book is that things are getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we know that? I mean, that's really hard to know. How do we know that? It's really okay. It's it's really hard to know. Things are getting better. You're absolutely right. Um, and the book tries to do two things that aren't always clearly uh, distinguished uh, by the reader. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe my fault that I didn't, you know, wave my hands enough to to remind people there were two things going on with regard to effectiveness. First, there's a series of claims that are made by people just that the, wor the world is getting worse in all respects. Yes. Okay, so I cite to people like Ban Ki-moon who says there's never been so much suffering in the world mm -hmm. since World War II. Mm -hmm. Or I cite to a scholar, Eric Posner, who writes that, you know, we've been writing these human rights treaties for, you know, a half century, and there, quote, unquote, there has been no marked decrease in human rights mm -hmm. violations. Now, those are very blanket claims, mm -hmm. and actually those claims are not as hard to measure. Mm -hmm. Why? Because once we can agree on whatever a definition might be of suffering, which is hard, okay, but if you use it in, in mo, you know, most ways that you and I would agree are reasonable, you know, do people live longer, do children die, do children their first year of life, you know, die, fewer children die, do fewer children first five years of life die, do uh, people have, you know, are, is there less death penalty? Do people have more access to food? Is there less hunger? Is there less famine? Okay. If you use pretty good measures of things that uh, uh, affect suffering, I don't think that there's evidence that objectively... That's percentages, though, right? That's percentages, right? The proportion of people in hunger. I think the... The absolute number of people might have been okay. growing up. Okay, so I have a table exactly on that. Yes, yeah. Okay, there are parts of the world where the, in, in parts, countries in Africa, for example, where uh, the absolute, the percentage of people in hunger is going down while the absolute number of people hungry is mm. going up. So that is, can, does exist in some countries. But as an average in the world, both the absolute number of people hungry and the percentage of people hungry has gone down. Okay. Um, so, but the second thing that's much, much harder to do mm. is to say that um, human rights, law, institutions, and movements have been somehow major contributors yes, to Yes, how that. you identify the causation. Yeah. So yeah. That, that is an immense problem for all social science, yes. as you know. <laughs> and so I try, I, my, I try to cite to literature that has tried seriously to measure that. And, but those are two different things. Yes. Um, and so, but, you know, I give examples. So one, things are getting better, and two, what role are human rights and institutions exactly. play? Yes. And I try to make a case that it's, 
I tried to make a case that in the first, in the first instance, is the world really going to hell in a handbasket? Uh, you know that I just said, give me, give me evidence. I'm sorry, I'm waiting to hear the evidence that mm-hmm. that really the, uh, and and the best thing to ask people is saying, if you believe that, just tell me, what what year do you want to go back to? Mm-hmm. You know? I guess there's one question that comes up in your book a lot which is a real theme coming up in your book a lot, which I took a lot from, actually, which is compared to what? Exactly. That's a key theme in your book. And you always say, listen, if you say human rights aren't working, what's your counterfactual? If you say, they, you know, what is your alternative world? What are we evaluating against? So when uh, people highlight flaws in various human rights institutions, you'll say, well, what is this idealistic dream world that you're comparing it against? And I guess that's a really key question for all of us social scientists when we're trying to be critical because obviously there's a danger in just putting out this critique when what you're saying is well what how should what, what should the bar be and maybe i could just push back against that and say well is it a low is there a danger with evidence for hope that being too easily satisfied so let me give another indicator if we look at the long-term convergence of latin america you know there their GDP per capita relative to U.S. GDP per capita. Mm-hmm. We don't see much shift over the past 200 years in countries' relative GDP, with the exception of maybe China, East Asia, Japan, South Korea. You know, those international inequalities have been remarkably entrenched. We don't see Latin America or South Asia or, or Africa catching up at all with the West. So I guess on that one indicator... We don't see much evidence for hope. I disagree. Okay, tell me. Tell me. Um, so my first book yes. was about Raul Prebisch and the Economic Commission for Latin America. And, yes. and Prebisch yes. made exactly that critique, that the, the, the periphery would never catch up with the center. There were declining terms of trade for peripheral products. Okay, so I've followed that debate. The, the, you know, Prebisch moves to UNCTAD. And UNCTAD tries to design a new international economic order yes, that, would, yes, yes, yes. that would lead to this convergence. Yeah, okay? yeah. The latest debates over inequality, if you read Branko Milanovic, yes. for example, but other authors as well, mm. say that inequality among and between countries has declined yes. in the world. Now, that is in large part not due to Latin America. It's in large part due to China. Yes, and but take India. out China, take out take out China, take out East Asia. We still have a number of large regions okay. of the world where we don't see I that. Know. All I'm saying is that but what Prebish wanted, yes, which was a decline in inequality between and among countries, has indeed happened in the world. Okay. And no one talks about it. Why? Because we're equally concerned, and correctly so, with inequalities between countries. So there's been remarkable success, yes, there's been remarkable success with East Asia. That aside, I don't think that we've seen any decline in international inequalities with Latin America's position. I think, what, Latin America's GDP per capita compared to the USA has been about, what, 20% 20% over the past mm-hmm. 200 years. I don't think that's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa even lower, obviously. Okay. But, but yeah, I totally okay. agree. Except the, the point the, on East the Asia. Ecla, totally but the Ecla people, yes, yes. for example, did yes. a self-critique. self-critique mm-hmm. And they said, you know, what we wanted was uh, growth with equity. Yes, yes. And they said, and one, uh, Van Silver, his name, did something called the empty box. He said, mm-hmm. if you have the two-by-two two table, you have growth, you have mm-hmm. equity, mm-hmm. right? And you want this box, which is growth with yes, equity. He said, yes. Latin America... After 
two decades of import substitution, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. doesn't have a single box of growth yeah. with equity. Yeah. Okay, now we have countries that fit into that box. Uh, for example, you know Uruguay, where I spend a lot of yes, time. Yes. Okay, Uruguay went uh, a decade with positive growth. Yes. Something that had not happened, I think, in the twentieth century. Okay. Uh, and improved uh, equality at the same time. You've written about this, right? That Latin America uh, has uh, countries, uh, Brazil under Lula, uh, Argentina uh, um, after, since uh, redemocratization, um, have seen growth with equity. Now, Prebish, Prebish would have been surprised because it was done with uh, exports of primary products, yes. not with import substitution. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, one of the lessons that comes out of Asia. We have lessons mm-hmm. to learn. Mm-hmm. And that is that not just export promotion, but mm-hmm. investments in education and land reform yes. is what the Asians did. Yes. And so I think we there's a model forward <laughs> uh, it, that says that countries in the periphery can move out. They have moved out. Uh, and and we know something about the way they did it. Okay, okay, pop that there. Um, oh yes, my next question is. Oh yes, so maybe I look back at the past, and maybe I'm hopeful. You know, let's for example, maybe I I look at the two thousands in Latin America, and I see the fallen inequality, or I look across past data. But I wonder, should I be hopeful now, given this? democratic recession or this rise in authoritarianism. I wonder to what extent data from the past really gives me evidence for hope going forward, given the new sort of geopolitical environment we're in. So the biggest message of this book is that no change happens without struggle. Yes, absolutely. And that all of the positive indicators I point to were gained by people struggling for change. Mm. Governments never handed their citizens, you know, their rights on a silver platter, okay? And so, you know, democracy is being challenged in many parts of the world today, and the the challenge that issues is are people going to step forward to defend their democracy? Yes, yes. So this is something I'm deeply concerned about. Right, the point is, it's not not predetermined, it depends on how we struggle and contest, whether that's in Hong Kong or Chile, we can't just write it off as the structural forces of history, it depends on mobilization. So... That I'm, so I'm deeply concerned what's happening in this country today, yeah. and the the you know the solution for challenges to democracy is more democracy, yeah. and it's for people taking really seriously. And I think a lot of people in this country kind of thought they thought they could take a lot of young people in this country yeah. thought they could take democracy for granted. Mm. They didn't have to vote, uh, and they could benefit from the democracy. And then you realize actually no people who 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 benefit from democracy need to defend democracy need to struggle protect their democracy, which is what we're engaged in right now. Okay, so I want to go back to my first question. I should have followed up on this. So let's suppose that things are getting better. How can one identify methodologically whether that's due to human rights institutions? Right, so... You know, you so you're taking us right to the middle of quantitative debates that I'm not an expert on. Okay. 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 Um, what kind I, of research there do you but, value as helpful? So I, I I'm very eclectic mm-hmm. with the kind of research I but I have uh, um, dabbled in mm-hmm. some quantitative research and so for example, um, the re- the book. The Justice Cascade. Yes. I relied on a research. great book. Thank you. I relied on research I did with uh, my um, uh, former student and colleague now, Hanjun Kim. He's mm. the 
was the corner. And, and since then, I've continued to work with my team, mm. and again, people like Jeff Dancy and others who are really bringing the, mm. the quantitative knowledge. But we established in that book, and we have confirmed again and again with new and better data that we've gathered, that uh, human rights prosecutions are associated with improvements in human rights controlling for everything else we know that mm. leads to human rights improvement. So I've come really, I really totally stick to the argument made in the justice cascade mm. that that transitional justice, all these other transitional justice mechanisms are, 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 are good. It's good to have a truth commission. It's good to have reparations. If you don't put trials in the mix, mm. you aren't going to see improvements. Okay, and, and like that research I'm doing, my colleagues are doing, Beth Simmons, for example, yes. and others are doing careful research to try to isolate this human rights variable, control for other variables, and see what happens. And we are seeing the uh, research that shows that's, that sometimes human rights uh, movements, institutions, and law can make a difference. Okay. So thinking back to your past work then, so you mentioned The Justice Cascade, great book. Um, you have a very famous uh, 1998 article, Norm mm -hmm. Cascades with Fillmore. And I was thinking, reflecting back on your work over the mm -hmm. past two decades, how do you think your, your views on norm dynamics have changed over that time? Like, if you were writing norm dynamics now, do you think you would have written it differently? Okay. Um, I think that article of one has held up pretty well. Uh, but mm. I think that we still, we norms researchers... Yes still have not answered some of the most fundamental questions that we raised then mm -hmm. and that I still think are the most fundamental questions. In other words, we still really don't understand well why some norms win out over others, mm. right? And I'm, uh, you know, I'm continually plagued to, to try to explain why is it that uh, certain campaigns have moved ahead and others have died in the water. Um, and so in Activists Beyond Borders, uh, you know, Margaret Keck and I made two, had two hypotheses mm. out there about conditions. And one, one was about the campaigns around bodily harm for in, uh, individuals perceived as innocent or vulnerable uh, were more likely to move ahead, mm. especially if there was a short causal chain mm. between the harmer and the harmed. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now that's a mouthful, but what it says is, you know, it's, it's some things are super complex and it's hard to run campaigns around them. Okay. Causes, let's say, causes of inequality. Mm. We've got campaign on inequality today. I'm completely behind it. Yes. Uh, it's hard to message. Yes. It's really hard to message because the causes of inequality are so complex and yeah. not fully understood. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, and then the second was the notion that campaigns around equality of opportunity, not necessarily that, and we were basing on historic or historical mm -hmm. evidence mm -hmm. that we looked at successful campaigns, and so you know, women's suffrage, anti-slavery, anti-apartheid, mm -hmm. for example, uh, would all be good examples. Mm -hmm. And so, and I feel again that's been reinforced. If you look at the move, the, the I think pretty rapid movement LGBT campaigns are making. Yes, huge classic equality of opportunity struggles. Mm. Okay? People aren't saying, you know, uh, we literally say, we just want the rights that everyone else has, mm. including to marry, mm. to love, mm. to just be ourselves, you mm. know? Mm. Um, and, you know, people were saying, 
you know, a decade ago, saying, you know, let's go nowhere. And and at that time, I said, you know, it looks like a classic equality opportunity uh, campaign to me. If I had to put money on something, I'd put yeah. money that this, you're not stopping the LGBT I mean, the uh, LGBT campaigns. movement it must be one of the most globally successful movements of the past yeah. three decades, mm-hmm. surely. Yes. Um, so I would like to, f- to focus on more, I would like us to focus on more research uh, on what, uh, you know, under what conditions can a norm campaign succeed. Mm. Uh, and those conditions have to do with the intrinsic, I'm arguing some intrinsic quality of the issue itself, mm. but also the opportunity structures, the domestic yeah. opportunity structures, the international opportunity structures. Mm. Um, you know, um, okay, I, would th- I guess we, actually one final question. And I think that's um, the critique that you discuss uh, from Samuel Moyne, which is that the danger of focusing on human rights violations is it's often, you know, human rights violations are terrible, you know, whether it's extrajudicial killings in the Philippines, for example. But that, but focusing on that, the sort of Amnesty International campaign of the few people wrongly imprisoned or whatever, can distract us from terrible inequalities and the situation for the masses that the this the critique is that the human rights rhetoric and the human rights mobilization the human rights institutions focus on very very bad harms that only affect maybe 0.5 percent of the population rather than thinking about and in so doing the argument is that we gloss over terrible living standards more broadly well the first thing it's a complete mischaracterization of the human rights movement in the world which has long worked on many, many more things than political prisoners, okay, mm-hmm. including Amnesty National Today, mm-hmm. which, as you know, has many diverse campaigns about economic, social rights, yes. uh, civil and political mm-hmm. rights. So first, let's be clear that the human rights movement in the world uh, and in the part of the world I study, Latin America, cannot be more dynamic and diverse in terms of the kinds of rights they're taking up. Yeah. So environmental rights, rights of indigenous people, yes. right to water, right to food, mm. right to education, mm-hmm. you name it, the human rights movement in Latin America is working on it. They're sometimes litigating yes. on it. Um, and, you know, there's there's litigation out of human rights organization in Colombia, the Justicia, which is the right of future generations to climate. They won a case before the Colombian Supreme Court that the right of future generations to a stable climate, uh, uh, you know, should the Colombian government has to create a plan around deforestation working with some of these plaintiffs, mm-hmm. right? That's out of the human rights movement. Okay? Yes. So there's no lack of creativity on the ground. And uh, some, a lot of the people who, who make that accusation are like reading documents from the 70s and thinking that characterizes the human rights movement today right. rather than ju- literally spending time with uh, people. But the second thing is that the, the, there's this crowding out argument that appears all the time. The notion is if I am, you know, if the human rights movement is all con- also concerned about genocide against mm-hmm. Rohingya people, mm-hmm. that somehow that's going to crowd out other things. And, and you know, there is some research in psychology, mm-hmm. individual, you know, psychology experiments that on trivial matters, one thing crowds out the other. Mm-hmm. But we don't have good evidence in uh, human rights and big social movements mm-hmm. that people who work on one human rights therefore ignore others. No. And my claim is actually mm-hmm. that people get started on working on a human right, yeah. children's rights. Let's yeah. say children who get started thinking about children's rights mm-hmm. or police mm-hmm. who get started thinking about their own rights as workers, as police, are more likely to be open and sensitive to understand other rights 
rather than less likely. Okay, so that's a hypothesis. Crowding us hypothesis, I haven't seen proof right. in the human rights movement. And I wish people would stop just assuming. We all know that if we care about torture, we obviously could not care about inequality. I'm with you. I'm very, very persuaded. Okay. Catherine Sukink. So, your book is Evidence for Hope, and you have another book coming out in 2020, yes. which is going to teach us about duties and responsibilities. <laughs> I am looking forward to getting my copy. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.